I read this account of a soldier, and some of you have been in this soldier's place, sitting on the hardwooden bleachers over at uh, Fort Benning while attending the U.S. Army Airborne School. He said, we prepared for our first parachute jump. Soon we would soar hundreds of feet above that uh, red Georgia clay. The jump master would uh, bark out, stand up, hook up, check equipment, stand in the door, go, go, go. He had our undivided attention. The instructor did. His voice rang out confidently. This is what he explained in case of a parachute malfunction. If your main parachute should fail to deploy, don't panic. Pull the handle of your auxiliary parachute. Should your auxiliary parachute fail to fill with air, don't panic. Pull it toward your body, then vigorously throw it away from yourself. Should your auxiliary chute again fail to deploy, don't panic. Vigorously repeat this process. Now, why do you think he had their undivided attention? I don't even have to explain that. They knew that within minutes... They would need his instruction. They would need to understand it, to grasp it, to be able to do it, and that their life could depend upon it. I doubt that there were any there not paying attention or saying, I can can get a hold of that later. I'll deal with that. Later on, they understood the urgency. And yet, when it comes to our faith, many of us do not grasp the urgency. We tend to act as if We've got all the time that we need. Billy Sunday once said, I sometimes wonder whether the church needs new members half as much as she needs the old bunch made over. He was an evangelist, not a pastor. That's why he would say things like that. Judging by the way multitudes in the church live, you'd think they imagined that they had a through ticket to heaven in a Pullman Palace car Grandparents explained that to your grandchildren later and had left orders for the porter to wake them up when they head into the yards of the New Jerusalem. Here's what he's saying. He said, as I look at how believers act, it's almost as if they're on autopilot and they're just kind of riding it out in luxury or expecting luxury and saying, yeah, you know, wake me up when we're almost there to the new Jerusalem. Too often people I talk to seem to have a similar 
view about spiritual things. I'll get serious about my faith later on. I got plenty of time to do that. They'll still be there when I really need it. Now, if we knew the moment of our death, we could do that. And yet we don't, do we? This has come home to me several times in the course of my ministry. More than once I've preached a sermon on a Sunday morning and looked out and looked into the face of an individual who was not there the next week. And they weren't there because they were experiencing their eternal destiny. One Sunday I had a woman who was in the choir Sunday morning. She always came Sunday night and she didn't come Sunday night. She had been killed in a car crash that afternoon. It's a, it's a reminder to me that there is an inherent danger in procrastinating about our faith. Now, today I want to talk about it really on, on two levels. We're going to focus on uh, just the last part of chapter 24. I'm going to summarize the, the first part in a moment. But we're going to look at what are some of those barriers that cause people to procrastinate. We see an example of it here in the passage before us. But I want to, I want to talk about it on two levels. The, the one level is for some of you and this person in this account, but perhaps some of you who are putting off a decision for Christ. There's a barrier that is keeping you from making that decision. And then there's another level that I want us to apply it. And that is some of you who have committed your life to Christ, but, but you're putting off getting serious about it. You're putting off letting it have an impact upon your life. And on both cases, we've got to be cautioned. Now, in this passage, and I would encourage you to read chapter 24 at some point, just a reminder of what's going on here. We see that, that Paul was in danger. There was a plot against him. And at the beginning of 24, um, uh, it, it, it talks about how uh, they got him to Caesarea and then some accusers followed him there. Caesarea would be a place where he would be in front of the governor, Felix. And uh, they felt he would be safe there. But some of his accusers came in order to, to basically try to get him convicted. They put forth their case. Paul puts forth his defense And he ends with this. His defense is not your typical defense. He basically says, I'll do this joyfully, cheerfully, make my defense. But here's what he says in verse 21. Well, start with 20. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, here's what he says he's guilty of. 
that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He said, guilty. Yeah, I I talked about the resurrection. I'm guilty of that. And then here's what happens. I want you to look closely at this encounter, beginning with verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Licius the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, I have no doubt that there are all kinds of barriers before us today. Some that we have deliberately placed there, walls to protect us. We've built them. We treasure them. And for some, it's, it's walls that we don't even know are there. Will you reveal those? But more importantly, Lord, will you break through those today? Will you use your word? Will you cause your spirit to work in our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to look very quickly at six barriers that I see reflected one negatively and and the others uh, in this passage, uh, barriers to to faith. And we're going to look specifically at at Felix and what what barriers were there. But I'm, I'm not sure these are very untypical of ones because I've seen all of these in uh, other individuals. The first one, uh, is the barrier of the limits of head knowledge. The limits of head knowledge. Look at verse 22. Felix, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Licius the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And I, I look at that, that first phrase, describing Governor Felix, at this point, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Some of your versions may may say being well acquainted with the way. In other words, this wasn't something that was totally foreign to him. At some point, in some way, he had been exposed to Christianity 
he seemed to have some kind of an understanding of Christianity. Now, in our inquirers class, we just finished one up today. I always try to make uh, that distinction of the difference between a saving faith and a mere intellectual assent, understanding intellectually. Um, You have to have a certain amount of head knowledge in order to understand the faith and to receive Christ. That, That knowledge has to be there. But if all we have is knowledge in our head, it is not sufficient for salvation for us. Now, how do we know that? Well, the, the most obvious place is over in James. He, he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You see what he's saying? He's saying, okay, you, you, you understand this basic tenet of the faith. Good for you. You know who else understands that? The demons. And we know that there won't be demons in heaven. Satan understands all of these things. You know what? The, the, the principles, the things that we study, what's in the Bible, Satan knows all those things. He knows his outcome. But he's not going to be in heaven. So evidently, just knowing it on that level is not sufficient for salvation. And evidently, that's what Felix had here. You know what scares me? Here in the Bible Belt, a lot of people have that kind of knowledge. Now, I don't know people's hearts. I simply can't know the hearts of people. But there are a lot of people I'm concerned have a good, accurate knowledge of the way. They're rather familiar with it. They know the right words to say. And yet, it may just be here. And what scares me even more is this. That there may be people in our congregation where that's the case. You know what I pray every single morning? Every morning. I pray this. And I got it from when I was preaching through Mark in Mark 12. Jesus says about somebody in that passage. He says he's not far from the kingdom. And every morning I pray, oh God, will you not let anyone who is under my ministry be left not far from the kingdom? Because that's not in the kingdom. Head knowledge can be a barrier if that's where it stops. The second barrier, some have to true saving faith, is because of the behavior of some Christians. Now, we're going to look at that one kind of from the opposite way in a minute. 
but one of the barriers too often cited is, well, I don't want to be a Christian because I see how Christians act. And here's how it usually comes out. Well, church is full of hypocrites. And you've probably heard about the old preacher that was on his way to church and he picked up a hitchhiker and the preacher said, you know, I'm on my way to church. Uh, Will you come to church with me? And the guy said, oh, no, the church is full of hypocrites. And the preacher said, well, that's okay. One more won't hurt. Come on. Let me give you what I think may be a better way to, to deal with that. We do need to be concerned about that. We should admit that there are some hypocrites in church. But when people are calling all churchgoers hypocrites, that's just not true. Because, you see, to be a... Hypocrite does mean you are a sinner, but you can be a sinner without being a hypocrite. And that's why here we try to be honest about our sin. That's why every week we talk about our sin and God's grace and his forgiveness and the freedom that we can have in Christ instead of trying to cover it up or act as if we don't need to deal with those things. That would be hypocritical. And so if somebody says, well, the church is full of people that sin, we we should say, of course it is. We understand that. And that's why we're there. We are worshiping the one who gives us hope even though we sin. Now, what about in this instance? In Paul's case with Felix, I'm happy to say I don't think that was really a problem. In fact, Felix seems to have some kind of, some kind of at least outward respect for him, if not appreciation for him. Look, he basically gives him some special treatment. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. That doesn't seem to be a barrier. And we must always ask ourselves at work and at school and in my neighborhood, is there anything that I'm doing that someone could use as a barrier to wanting to know Christ? Because all they see is me. There's a third barrier to true saving faith that we can see in this passage. And I see it often. It is a discomfort in the presence of truth. Look at verse 25. It says, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Okay, look at at what he's talking about. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. And what's his reaction? Go away for the present. Go away for now. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So here he is. He's talking to 
Felix about these things, righteousness, self-control. Paul's talking to him about the very problems he had. It mentions Drusilla here. Now, Drusilla was Felix's third wife. He had seduced her away from her husband. So Paul is basically preaching the gospel, but he's specifically talking about righteousness to Felix who lived an unrighteous life. He's talking about self-control to one who had known. Felix was evidently one of those that if he saw it, he had to go out and get it, no matter what the consequences were. And he talked about the judgment to come. And nobody without Christ wants to hear about that. So he'd had enough. He's alarmed. He sends Paul away. That was his only way of of dealing with it. But you know what? That indicates to me that he understood what Paul was, was saying. The only proper response to the gospel is either to receive it and believe it and act upon it or to be afraid of it. Otherwise, you haven't really understood it. You can have either of those responses and understand it. But if you don't have one of those, you haven't really understood the gospel. There's another barrier for some, and that is just procrastination. Verse 25, again, look at the last part of it. This is after Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. In other words, it's not convenient right now. What he was saying is not convenient for me to, to think about my own unrighteousness. I'm not ready for that. And, but he says, you know, I'll, I'll call you at some point. And I talk to people all the time that basically imply, you know, I got so much going on in my life. I I can't even think about that right now. I'll think about it later is the implication. When I get time. And really, when, when would one get time if they don't make it a priority? I read a pretty great story that took place 12 years ago, back in 2002. Leonardo Diaz was a Colombian hiker, and he decided to do some serious mountain climbing with his uh, friends, and they went up into uh, the Andes, and a snowstorm came in. He somehow got separated from the other hikers, and he was kind of a novice, Uh, but you know, he still wanted to survive. And so, uh, after things, the weather calmed down a little bit, he couldn't see anyone and he's thinking, what am I going to do? And, uh, amazingly he had a cell phone with him, but amazingly all the minutes were expired. You know, he'd put it off a little bit. So he's laying there. Hypothermia is setting in. And he hears his phone ring. 
This was in an article. This really happened. Here's his phone ring. And he picks up his phone and says, hello, or whatever they, hola, you know, whatever they, they say. And uh, it was the phone company. And they said, we just wanted to remind you that your phone is out of minutes. And he said, I'm lost. I'm up in the mountains. And uh, long story short, they, they, you know, he told them where they were. They got to him and, and so on. But ultimately, that procrastination almost cost him his life. I'm afraid that, that sometimes when we're not in the middle of it, we treat God's truth like it's an unwelcome call from a solicitor. The free offer of the gospel as if I'll deal with that later. I'm unwilling to answer that call. There's a fifth barrier, and that is temporal issues. Verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So here's one reason he kept the conversation going. Uh, With Felix, we see him not even having pure motives for being willing to talk with uh, the apostle. He kept calling him back in because he was hoping for a bribe. He was hoping to advance himself. Sometimes it can be a hindrance when people believe that becoming a Christian is going to cramp their lifestyle. That's the temporal aspect. You know what? That's going to mess up the things I really like to do if I get serious about my faith or if I give my life to Christ. And there's one more potential barrier here. And that's what I'd call people-pleasing. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Felix wanted to have favor with the Jews. Coming to Christ wouldn't have been acceptable to them. That was off of his radar. And that can sometimes be a a hindrance to genuine faith. And and in two ways, or, or growing faith, deepening faith. One way is if being a Christian is the popular thing in where you work or in your school or whatever, it's easy to pretend like you're a Christian. Or the other side of it. If it's an unpopular thing where you work or in your school, it's easy to cover up your genuine faith. In either case, you're putting people-pleasing over knowing the true and the living God. Remember the story I told you at the beginning of this message about the parachute jump instructor? He told him what to do about the auxiliary chute, and he said, you know, do it over and over again. But then he paused dramatically, 
And any pause at that point would be dramatic. He looked in their eyes and the one writing the account said with a little mischievous smile, he said this, should all of these other attempts also fail, don't panic. You have the rest of your life for your parachute to deploy. Think about it. Satan would love to give you that kind of a comfort. That kind of a message. Maybe today you've seen that you, you've procrastinated getting serious about your faith in Christ. Satan would love to say to you, don't panic. You've got the rest of your life to deal with that. But you know what? God's way more gracious than Satan. Because God says, no, today. Today is the day of salvation. Deal with it now. In the name of Christ, let's bow together.